All right, well, here's a question for you. I found myself asking this question this week. How do you get a puppy to obey you? How do you get a puppy to obey you? All right. Uh, my wife and I, our family, bought a puppy this week. I'm just, this is a confession time. You guys look like safe people. I'm just being vulnerable with you right now. It may have been a mistake, but we bought a puppy. All right. And I found myself Googling that, ex- that same sentence on my phone earlier, just a couple days ago. How do you get a puppy to obey you? If you've had a puppy or tried to train a puppy, you know it's not easy to get a puppy to listen to your words and to do what you say, okay? Some, maybe it's easier than others. Either way, it takes commitment. It's a task. You need to really devote yourself to training the puppy right. How do you get a puppy to obey you? Um, especially when, you, you know, we have kids at our home, and I, I shouldn't really be asking myself, how do I get my kids to obey me? Now I got a puppy I got to figure out, okay? If you don't know me, I've got a track record of just getting way in over my head, all right? Um, the question that we see this morning, and we will see over and over and over again throughout our study of Deuteronomy, is not about how do you get a puppy to obey you, but the question is, that we'll look at and see this morning, is how does God get his people to obey him? How does God get his people to obey him? This idea of obedience is a theme that we see all throughout the Bible, and we see especially prominent here in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a significant, significant theme. A couple weeks ago, we started walking through this book together as a church, and the first four chapters, there's really sort of three different sections. There's the first four chapters, there's the latter sort of four-ish chapters, and in the middle is the biggest section, um, and all of them really are, with a little bit of narrative in there, is all primarily speeches that Moses, sermons really that Moses is giving to God's people as they stand on the threshold of taking, of marching across the Jordan and taking um, possession of the promised land. Moses is preparing them for what God has called them to. And uh, as they knock on the door of the promised land, Moses addresses the people before they cross and begins. The way he addresses them is he retells them really their story. He's telling them their story over again. Moses exhorts the people of God to respond to God's word with obedience. As he proclaims God's word, the result he wants from God's people is that they would listen to his word that they might live well in the promised land. This is not what the people did when they were there before. If you guys remember chapter 1, Moses reminds them of the rebellious decisions the people made and how their disobedience caused setbacks on their journey to the promised land. And he, he tells them these setbacks, these, these stories of their, their ancestors' disobedience as a, a warning, trying to help them from following in a similar path of disobedience. That was chapter 1. What we see in chapter 2 is different. He doesn't focus in his retelling of their story so much on the setbacks as much now as his focus is on their victories. Their victories. Victories that came about due to their obedience and God's faithfulness. And his exhortation to God's people way back then is the same exhortation to his people right now. Follow the path of obedience. Follow the path of of obedience. How does he get them to obey God's word? As he tells them their story, how does he motivate them to actually obey God's word? What we'll see this morning in chapter 2 is that Moses proclaims the faithfulness of God to the people of God that they might respond in obedience to God. 
So how does he motivate them? How does he get them? How does he motivate them to obey? He reminds them of the faithfulness of God in hopes that it would produce obedience for this people. So two points this morning as we look at this chapter. And we won't, ex- it, we won't walk through it in its entirety. Natalie just wrote a few pas- read a few passages of it. But two main points. The first point I want us to consider together is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God as we see it revealed in chapter 2. As God's people hear it from the mouth of Moses. The faithfulness of God. The second point is how do we respond to God's faithfulness. So number one, the faithfulness of God. We're told in chapter 1 that the previous generation, after refusing to enter the promised land, was commanded by God to head south toward the Red Sea. I'll just pause real quick and just say you'll be really helped if the words aren't going to be up there. Um, so if you do have a copy of God's Word, it'd be really, you'll be helped this morning because it is a significant section of Scripture we're going through. You'll be really helped if you have it open or on your phone or whatever. We talk often here about East Campus that we love, like, just a physical book in your lap. There's something about this book that's just really powerful. And like I, just a dream of ours is to see families walk through those doors with big Bibles in their hands. This is awesome, okay? So you'd be really, if you don't have one, that's fine. You can use your phone. We have some that are back there you can grab as well. But because we will be looking at a significant portion of Scripture, you'll just be helped if you are, are looking at it, okay? So we're told in chapter 1 that the previous generation, after refusing to enter the promised land, was commanded by God to head south toward the Red Sea. The people instead go north, and they were quickly defeated by the Amorites. In verse 1 of chapter 2, it's it's simply a restatement of God's command. This time, they listen. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. So the Lord told them to head this way, and they go that way. The chapter begins by introducing what what would be really essentially a second chance for the nation of Israel. And their return to obedience is the beginning of a more positive tone that will sort of color the next couple of chapters. God's people are responding to God's word through obedience. After many days, says, we traveled around Mount Seir. Verse 14 tells us that these many days that they traveled around Mount Seir was actually 38 years. So God's people refuse to take the promised land. They refuse to go the direction that God tells them. Finally, they listen and they obey. And 38 years, they spend in the wilderness without a land. These 38 years are direct consequence of their sin, okay? Their dislocation as a people was the discipline of the Lord brought about by their disobedience. This is the discipline of the Lord. A whole generation, we're told, kept those who disobeyed, who would not take the promised land. God disciplines them. They're kept from entering the promised land. While this season of discipline, the people will learn not only that it is never worthwhile to sin and disobey the Lord, that lesson they will learn, but they will also learn that even in the midst of their disobedience, they'll learn a great deal about the faithfulness of God. So as we look at this chapter, three ways that God's faithfulness is revealed. First of all, let's consider together God's providence. God tells Moses in verse 3, you've been traveling around this mountain country long enough, turn northward. God directs them to head toward Seir, which is the land of Edom, Edom, home of the descendants of Esau. God warns them, do not fight them, be very careful with them, Don't, don't confront them. 
There's a scarcity of rainfall in that area, about maybe five inches annually that comes. And, and a large contingent of people moving through this land would, would easily be seen as a threat to the, the Edomites. And, and potentially maybe threaten their store of water. So, so God told Israel to pay for whatever you eat, to pay for whatever you drink in, in an attempt to avoid war. God's careful instructions reveal that Israel, though God's covenant people, they are not free to take simply any land that they wanted. He had provided rather a particular land for them. And this reality, along with the statement in verse 5, I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Remember, God's covenant people are Israel, descendants of Jacob. Esau, are, those who descended from Esau, are not his covenant people. However, God says in verse 5, I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. This demonstrates that God is sovereign over all of the land and over all of the people. Think about what this must have communicated to a people who, who saw their who, who refused to take the promised land initially because they were afraid of the people who lived there, the, the giants who lived there, the cities with fortified walls. They, they looked at all of the threats within the promised land. They said, no, thank you, not for us. They were filled not with faith, but filled with fear. And here God says he has given a land not to his covenant people, but to Esau as a possession for them. Think about what this reality must have done for the nation of Israel. If God would honor the right of Edom, later we'll see in chapter 2 also that of Moab and Ammon, to possess their own land, how much more would he honor Israel's claim to their promised land? This, this highlights for us the providence of God. That God is able to provide for and sustain and govern the entire universe. All of the people that live in it, all of the land that's made up of, God is sovereign over it all. And it's important for us to recognize the importance of God's providence. The Heidelberg Catechism, question number two, makes a point of making sure that you do not miss the providence of God. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The Heidelberg Catechism make, wants to make sure that, that as we study Scripture, as we study the things of God, that we recognize God is providing. He is, he is providentially controlling the entire universe. And this is, patient, this is significant for us. It's, this, this understanding God's providence provides for us patience in the midst of adversity. It allows us to be a people who are thankful in prosperity, to have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no one can separate us from him, from his love. It's important to understand the, the significance of God's providence. When we think about God's providence as he relates to creation, we could simply say that, that God, what does it mean for him to be provident, provident over all of creation? It means that he will see to it. He will, he will see to and take care of, provide for that which he has created. Thus, providence is an act of God's seeing to the universe. He will see to it. 
God demonstrates his faithfulness to the covenant people of Israel by showing that he is providentially in control over everything. Second way that we see his faithfulness is in God's promises. In verses 9 through 25, we learn of their journey past the land of the Moabites. These are now the descendants not of Esau, but the descendants of, of Lot and the Ammonites. And just like he told about the Edomites, God again tells them, do not harass them, do not contend with these people, do not confront them, do not make war with these people. In the midst of this passage, Moses reminds the people of how he, he dealt with disobedience in the previous generation. In verse 14 and 15, and, and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook of Zered, these 38 years, until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. God is reminding his people, Moses is reminding the people of how God had said, listen, this generation that disobeyed me will not enter the promised land. Moses reminds them of that promise that God made. And by doing so, he reveals that God is faithful to his word. What God says he will do, God always does. By reminding the people of this, Moses said in effect that God is faithful to his promises, even to his threats. And this is a very simple lesson. What God says he will do, he will do. And you can take that, take that truth to the bank every single day of the week. Look how I dealt with your fathers. 38 years. Think about this. Traveling around the wilderness for 38 years. I mean, there is a multitude of people. And all of them over the course of 38 years would die through like pestilence, through sickness. Just, just die. 38 years, an entire generation that disobeyed God would be dead. And so as they traveled, no, no land of their own, they traveled around as a camp just moving throughout the wilderness. Death was constantly in their camp. And the very scent of death, the odor of death was a constant reminder to God's people that what God says he will do, he will do. It's a painful reminder, but it was a reminder just the same. A constant reminder that God is a promise-keeping God. He's faithful to his word. So if God promises he will deliver them to the land beyond the Jordan, then they had every reason to believe that he would do just that. No obstacle could stand in his way. He was, provi he was providentially in control, and his promises he would be true to. A third way that we see God's faithfulness displayed in chapter 2 of Deuteronomy is through God's power. God's power. Chapter 2 ends with the description of the conquest of the Transjordan, the, the land just east of the Jordan. Unlike their interaction with the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, Israel goes to war with people. And we see a group at the end of chapter 2 and a, and a group at the beginning of chapter 3. Commentators point out that there's really two reasons why God would allow Israel to fight and conquer these nations. I'm sure there's, there's more than two reasons, but we can think of two that I think are helpful. Um, the, the first is to, to make land available for the two and a half tribes that would settle the Jordan. So that land now becomes available for those two and a half tribes to settle. But really the main sort of practical reason for us this morning is because really it demonstrates God's power, right? 
Here, here are a people who have no home. They have been traveling for some 40 years in the wilderness. And now they come across an established people who likely are stronger than them, more powerful than them, have the right weapons, fortified cities, and God's people destroy them. Again, beginning of chapter 3, we'll see a very similar thing. And, and why God does this, we see this oftentimes in the Old Testament. And for many people, this becomes a, a barrier even to faith. How could God be a God of war in the Old Testament? Um, we'll see this in chapter 7. We'll spend a little more time answering that question then. But for now, what we need to think about is why would God do this before they would enter the land of Canaan? And the reality is he would do this, think for, two, for one reason, for two groups of people. That both people would see a demonstration of God's power. That for the Israelites, as they go to war against these people and they conquer them and they defeat them, it would be a, it would be a, a, a boost of confidence for them. Look what we can do. And they know what's lying beyond the, the Jordan and the land of Canaan, the promised land. They know about the giants and the big cities. They've heard rumors about what's waiting for them. They, they could be tempted like their fathers to turn away in fear. But again, God wants them to move forward in faith, knowing that God is with them and his power is with them and is sufficient to do what he has called them to do. And so he wants their, their, their trust and their faith in him to be strengthened. They will see, a, this is a demonstration of God's power that will give, quite honestly, it will give hope and trust to the people of God. And for the enemies of God, it will put fear in their bones. When both of those things happen, do you know what else happens? God is glorified. God's name is exalted. God is majestic. And both groups of people are caused to look at him and to consider how great and mighty and powerful this God is. If God could defeat Sihon and Og, then he can give victory over to the strongholds of Canaan. In summary, chapter 2 really highlights God's faithfulness to a disobedient and undeserving people. That's what it does. It shows that although these people, while they are disobedient, while they are undeserving people, God remains faithful. And this is a recurring theme that we see throughout Scripture. God's persistent redemption of the unworthy and unthankful people of this world and even in this room. This isn't just a story of how God redeems his people in the Bible. This is the story of how God redeems you and me. If you're sitting here this morning and maybe you're not overtaken by the, the, the glory of God, but maybe you are more convinced that you know, as you look at your own life and your own heart, the question you're asking is not how powerful is God, but the question is why would he want anything to do with me, right? You might be thinking to yourself, you don't know my story. You don't know what I have done. You don't know my past. You don't know what happened even this very morning. And I would just say you're right, I don't. But I do know my story. I do know my sin, my filth, my mess. And because I'm so familiar with my own sin, I know that there's nothing in my life that's more precious, nothing that's more amazing than the grace of God. In fact, if you are sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, God's grace is not for me. 
There's no way. I would say God's grace is precisely for you. God is the God of second chances, and we see this all throughout the Bible. Moses himself, as he proclaims these words to God's people, he is a man who understands the, the significance and the necessity for a second chance. Right? He, he is responsible for murdering somebody. Moses, even as he led God's people, he disobeyed God. And as a result, his discipline was he couldn't go with the people of God into the land of God. He, these would be some of his final Words. If anybody knows that God is a God of second chances, Moses gets it. You just go throughout the Old Testament. You think of character after character. Jonah's one that comes to mind right away. Who's a prophet of God who refused the commands of God. And, and God in his grace sends up a big fish and swallows him and, and pukes him back on the land. And God's word comes to him again a second time. Tells him the exact same thing. God loves to give Second chances. I love the story of Peter and, and the second chance that God gives Peter. If you remember the story of Peter and Jesus' final hours, Peter denies and rejects. He doesn't want to be associated with his Savior, his close friend. As he's marching towards his death, Peter wants nothing to do with him, denies him. And, and after Jesus is crucified and resurrected from the grave, he comes to Peter. And you know what he does with Peter? He restores him. He says, Peter... You feed my sheep. You are going to be the rock upon which I build my church. Go now and feed my sheep. He gives him a second chance. This is what God does all throughout the Bible, all throughout history. He's a God of second chances. And some of us this morning who need a second chance. And God's word comes to you this morning and reminds you of his faithfulness to you. God's grace to you. And the question that really is just for you is how are you going to respond? As you consider God's faithfulness, his relentless pursuit of you as a rebellious, disobedient sinner, how do you respond? I'll give you a couple options. Point number two, the response of God's people. How ought we respond to God's grace? The first and most obvious application in the text is be obedient to his word, right? Be obedient to his word. That's the whole reason why Moses is preaching to them. What does he want from them? He wants that they would listen to his word, that they might live. What must be avoided is a repeat of what happened in the previous generation. Rebellion of God's people against the commands of God. Moses does not want that to happen again. So he proclaims God's word. These people, Moses simply wants one thing. He wants them to obey God's word. The reason he provides story after story in chapter 2 of God's faithfulness to God's people, his providence, his promise, his power is so that they might provide motivation for his people to obey his word. He tells them as much in chapter 4. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules I'm teaching you and do them that you might live. So he, 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 called, he makes a direct connection between their life in the land and their obedience to God's command. He recognizes that those two things go hand in hand. Before Moses summarizes the law, so if you were to look at, again, going back to the three sections of this book, 
the, the beginning sort of four chapters, there's a big section in the middle, which really is Moses' summary of the law. And at the end, there's another section, some of Moses' final words. What we see before this major section of law is what God does is he, is he couples both ends of the law with his grace. With his grace. And so chapters 1 through 4 is a testimony of God's grace. The commentators in the ESV Study Bible point out that in the whole book of Deuteronomy, the law is surrounded by grace. And keeping the law is a response to grace that's been received and grace that they can anticipate. And folks, this is the message of the gospel. God wants us, yes, to respond to his word with obedience. However, we should all recognize that if we, even on our best day, don't stand a chance to do that. Even on your best day, your best effort falls short. None of us have the ability to perfectly obey God's law. And the Bible tells us very clearly that that's not even a possibility for us. No one of you is righteous, not even one, that we've all turned aside, every single one of us. None of us can fully obey the law. It's just not a possibility. But where we are unable to obey, God still provides a way. He demonstrates his faithfulness to us through the offering of his son, Jesus, the one who was fully able to trust the Father, the one who was completely obedient, even obedient to the point of death on a cross. And because of this Jesus and what he has done, his obedience, we can now appreciate the, full, the, the faithfulness of God in a way that, that even Israel couldn't fully understand. In Christ the Lord, he has graciously provided for us. In Christ the Lord, he has fulfilled all of his promises to us. And in, in, in Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see the demonstration, the revealing of his power, a power of God that is for salvation for all who believe. The law surrounded by grace. I mean, this is the story of us as a people. God wants us in James chapter 1.22 to not just be hearers of the word. He wants us to be hearers and doers also. You read the New Testament and the same things. The book of Deuteronomy, is the, we talked about at the very beginning, it's the, it's the book that Jesus taught the most from. Okay, So what Jesus doesn't say is there's no reason for you to obey the law anymore. Right? He, he still wants us to be hearers of the word and doers of the word. But the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that in our inability to actually do that, Jesus makes a way for us through his own obedience. So the first step is to walk as a follower of Jesus Christ in humble and faithful obedience, one step after another to God's word. You know, Psalm 8, I'll give you just maybe the last two I'm going to say, and I'm just going to kind of speak about them together because I think they go hand in hand, okay? And two other ways that we can respond is to remember God's faithfulness in your life and to speak God's faithfulness to others. So remember his faithfulness in your life and to speak it to others. One of my favorite psalms historically has been Psalm chapter 78. The psalmist declares his commitment to proclaim the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. In fact, he goes a step further to say that, in fact, God commanded our fathers to do likewise, to teach 
their children. So if you were to read Psalm 78, it's a long psalm, but if you were to read it, it would sound a little bit like Deuteronomy. He's recounting the, the wonderful deeds of God, of God as he's worked redemption through his people. And then the first couple of verses, it says this. So the idea is that you are to, you are to proclaim the glorious deeds that God has done so that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. Folks, this is a wonderful picture of what it looks like to just disciple families, family discipleship within the context of the church. Is that our job is to, is to tell the next generation of the things that the Lord has done so that they would know them for the purpose of setting their hope in God. So they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So as we proclaim God's word to God's people, people hear his word. They set their hope and their trust in this faithful God, and they keep his commandments. This is a picture of what it looks like to really do life together as a people. That we are in the regular practice of remembering God's faithfulness. And I'll tell you, this one specifically for me has stood out. Because I think this year as a church, we've had some challenges. I mean, as a nation, as a country, it just seems like for, for me, my focus has so much been on everything that's going wrong, okay? And there's a lot to choose from, right? And it's, it's been tempting to just constantly focus on just the last 12 months and all of the challenges and the obstacles and the things that aren't as they ought to be. And it's good to do that. I mean, I think you have to square up with where you are. That's a healthy practice. But you also have to remember, you, you can't do that while forsaking how God has revealed his faithfulness to you throughout your life. We must be in the practice as a people of regularly remembering and speaking and exhorting God's faithfulness to one another. To pointing out what the Lord has done through us. How he has shown us his providence as he has revealed to us his promises that we still have, and how he demonstrated through us, even as a people, his power. The Lord has used our church in mighty ways over the years. And we have to remember God's faithfulness to us. We have to speak that to one another. Because the temptation is when you're wandering in the wilderness, you can misinterpret those wilderness moments as a lack of faithfulness. And that would be the wrong thing to do. He's given us one another that we would remind when we see, just this morning, like about 10 minutes before I left my house, within about five minutes, I got notified by two people from our church, one from East Campus and one from Central Campus. And each of those individuals had just, within the last 24 hours, experienced a significant wilderness moment. One was a health situation. Another was a total loss due to fire. Significant wilderness moment and they were calling me because <laughs> they wanted some help I, what can I do what can I do well I reminded them of God's providence and that they, they have the ability to trust I can't explain it doesn't take the pain away or the suffering or the hurt it doesn't make that go away but I was able to point them to trust in God's providence, that he's in complete control. Secondly, 
I was able to remind them of God's promises to them, that he is a good and a great and a merciful God, full of compassion, that he loves them, that nothing, no matter what the wilderness situation is that they're walking through, that you're walking through, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. No circumstances so significant that could peel us out of his grip. And finally, I was able to encourage them to believe in God's power. Whatever that wilderness moment, whatever that catastrophe, that sickness, that pain, that loss, God is able to do far more than we can even ask or imagine. And don't let the circumstances of our moment question that truth. Can't say exactly why they always happen. Can tell you for sure they're not fun when they do. But don't allow them to question, allow you to question God's faithfulness, but rather be reminded of his faithfulness to you in the past and his grace to you in the future. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much just for the opportunity we have here this morning as your people again to come together and to worship you. Lord, I thank you for um, just your word this morning and uh, just the reality that you are a faithful, faithful God. And you've given us so much evidence of that, Lord, in your word and even if our li- in our lives, Lord. I pray that you would give us eyes that see your grace, that see your power, your um, sovereignty, Lord, your Um, purposes and your promises, Lord, just at work, I pray that you would give us eyes that see you in our life, regardless of our circumstances. Lord, I pray that we would be a a church that is constantly reminded of, of your faithfulness, Lord. And as we think and reflect on your grace and your mercy as you have revealed it to us, Lord, I pray that you would allow us the ability to respond in humble and faithful obedience. I pray just even this week as we open up our Bible and we read throughout the week that you would help us that when we close up our Bible that we would be thinking practically how can we obey what we just read. Help us not to be a church that is just filled with a bunch of hearers. Lord, help us to be a church who do what you say. We love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Church.